Welcome, Backgrounds Table listeners. Uh, Very excited to have an episode all dedicated towards diabetes. Uh, John, what article do you have up for us first? So first, we're going to talk about an article, Early Metformin in Gestational Diabetes, a Randomized Controlled Trial. This was published in JAMA October 2023 by Dunn et al. And what was the research question? They wanted to know, does early metformin initiation improve glycemic control and reduce insulin use in pregnant patients with gestational diabetes? And why did this catch your eye? Well, worldwide, almost 3 million pregnancies a year are affected by gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes is associated with a number of maternal as well as neonatal adverse events. Um, And there's also a risk for future risk of developing type 2 diabetes in these patient populations. Glycemic control does improve outcomes, but uncertainty exists around optimal management. Dietary and lifestyle changes are usually made as the initial treatment choice, and then pharmacotherapy is started within a couple of weeks if blood sugars are not at target. And in Canada, in most places, insulin is the first-line medical therapy if you aren't at target based on lifestyle and dietary changes. There is evidence, though, that metformin can improve maternal and fetal metabolic outcomes. Uh, But the question here is, well, what if metformin was started earlier on in the disease process? Might that improve maternal and fetal outcomes as well? Yeah. You know, my recollections of residency and caring for patients with um, diabetes in pregnancy is that the vast majority require insulin and no one likes insulin. Uh, I, I can't find a single patient that's like, hey, doc, I really loved stabbing myself four times a day with that needle. Can you give me some more? So anyway, very relevant clinical question. What was the study design? This was a phase three parallel superiority randomized control trial, double blind, placebo controlled. This was done at two sites in Ireland, a tertiary university hospital, as well as a regional hospital. For the patient population, patients were aged 18 to 50 years with gestational diabetes, and this was defined on a 75-gram oral glucose tolerance test with a fasting glucose of greater than or equal to 5.1, a one-hour greater than or equal to 10, and a two-hour greater than or equal to 8.5. They had to be pregnant with a singleton fetus with gestation up to 28 weeks plus six days. There were a few different exclusion criteria, including if you had an established diagnosis of type 1 or type 2 diabetes, um, or if your oral glucose test was higher levels, which might mean treating earlier on. For the intervention, patients were assigned one-to-one to either metformin or matching placebo, and doses were titrated every two days. Insulin was started if two or more glucose readings were outside of the target level, and this was in addition to usual care, and usual care was you know, the focus on dietary and lifestyle intervention. For the outcomes, the primary outcome was a composite of insulin initiation before delivery or fasting lab glucose value of 5.1 or greater at weeks 32 or weeks 38. There were a number of secondary outcomes, both maternal and neonatal focused. This was an intention to treat analysis. All right, cool. So, you know, we have a double blind placebo controlled trial in adults age 18 to 50 with gestational diabetes. I'm curious if there are any 50-year-old women in this trial, but I guess we'll find out shortly. And the primary outcome, it wasn't focused necessarily on A1C or glycemic control. Instead, it was the primary outcome was, did they need insulin before delivery or did they have high fasting blood glucose values? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. All right. And what did the patients look like? 
So patients were um, randomized over the periods from 2017 to September 2022, and there were 2,308 pregnancies that were screened. Ultimately, 535 pregnancies were randomized. The average age was 34. The majority of patients were white. Uh, about 36% had had prior gestational diabetes in another pregnancy, and the average BMI was 30. Uh, 90% of patients adhered to finger stick glucose testing. Uh, there was a quite impressive adherence as well. More than 80% adherence to study medications was documented for 92% of patients. About 5% of patients had to stop taking metformin due to GI side effects. Okay. And uh, what did they find? So for that primary outcome, which, you know, as you know, was the composite of insulin initiation before delivery or fasting glucose of greater than 5.1 at weeks 32 or 38, they found no difference in that composite outcome. The risk ratio was 0.89 with a confidence interval of 0.78 to 1.02. There were a number of secondary outcomes. Um, and you know, as part of one of those secondary outcomes, they did show that there were lower rates of insulin initiation, 38% in the metformin group compared with 51% in the placebo group. They also saw that there was weight loss, uh, or sorry, less weight gain rather in the uh, metformin group, one gram less than those on the placebo arm. Um, a number of other secondary outcomes, the neonatal outcomes, they did show like a lower birth weight, 113 gram difference in patients in the metformin group compared with placebo. But you know, the real focus, the primary outcome, no difference. Uh, yes. Now, John, you and I philosophically disagree on our interpretations of confidence intervals. That's okay. There are, there are a lot of people in your camp and maybe less in my camp. Just one clarifying point. You said one gram um, uh, lower weight in women on metformin, but I think you meant one kilogram. Is that right? Oh, correct. Yeah. One kilogram, one gram would not be very impressive. Would yeah, it? Yeah. I, that we can agree on for sure. <laughs> we can definitely agree on. Okay. So you and I are going to have different take-home points from this. That's fine. Um, what were the main limitations from your standpoint? So one of the limitations was that the definition for gestational diabetes differed from what we would use in North America. And so, you know, whether or not this is totally generalizable to our patient population, I guess is up for debate. The other thing is that, you know, there was a lot of secondary analysis and the authors did acknowledge that this is more to guide future research, but they sure did highlight a lot of the secondary outcomes. And so there's always concern for multiple comparisons, but Hey, I understand that that's what happens. But I, I think, you know, otherwise it was a pretty well-designed randomized control trial. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that they pulled off a placebo controlled trial in pregnant women without the interest of any freaking drug company, this is incredible. It's, it's truly incredible that they pulled this off. But anyway, what's a take home point from uh, your standpoint? Well, so I guess from my standpoint, early metformin initiation was not associated with reduced insulin initiation or improved fasting blood glucose. Yeah. See, I look at it and I interpret it as 38% started insulin if you're on metformin versus 51% in the placebo group. I see that as a 13% reduction, absolute risk reduction. So, so for me, I see this as a reason to give metformin. And yes, I respect the fact that the confidence interval crossed one at 1.02. But for me, whether or not it crosses, that's not, that doesn't sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater. Maybe a bad one in this article. Um, but, but, but yeah, so, so, you know, that's just my perch, but I respect what you're saying. So anyway, it sounds like this will not be practice changing for you, or maybe it is depending on what you're doing before. 
I mean, full disclosure, I don't see a lot of pregnant patients. And so I think from what I had learned previously, I guess I would say it's more practice affirming. Start first with the lifestyle a dietary intervention. Um, but I don't know that I would start metformin early based on this data. Okay. We, we should have, we should have brought on your better half, uh, Kimber <laughs> to, to hear her, her two cents on this as the card carrying OBGYN. I'm going to ask my colleagues at Mount Sinai, um, how they interpret this, but I mean, from my perch, not that anyone's asking, I probably would be more likely to start metformin early with the caveat that, hey, here's the best data we have from this trial, uh, but there's a decent chance you'll be less likely to have to stab yourself multiple times per day. And, and I think there's value to that. Like, cause yeah, if I was the pregnant patient, I would not want to put myself on insulin. Like you're going to gain weight. Like you're going to stab yourself. It's not fun, but man, there's all those secondary analyses that they did. Maybe this is just random chance that that outcome was the one that was, uh, the statistically significant one and clinically for meaningful sure. too. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> for sure. But I care less about a, a P value and especially for the primary outcome. Just look at the primary outcome. 0.89 confidence intervals just crossed 1.02. That doesn't mean that this shows no effect. I interpret this to mean it shows a 11% relative risk reduction. So like one minus 0.89 um, with the possibility that there might be a null effect. Uh, but that's a that's my own bias. Should we keep arguing this or move on? Nah, I think, I think it, we're good. <laughs> yeah. I wonder how many listeners have already turned off. Like, oh, get over it. Okay. Anyway, so um, next up, is this hot off the press article that looked at uh, terzepatide compared to three times a day insulin for adults who were on uh, long-acting insulin. This was published in uh, JAMA in October 2023. I think we had talked about terzepatide a few months back, but uh, what was the research question here? What is the efficacy and safety of terzepatide versus insulin list pro three times a day as an adjunct to insulin glargine? Ooh, that's a kind of cool question. Uh, what was the idea here? Why was this important? Terzepatide is a once-weekly glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide and GLP-1 receptor analog. It's been approved already for the management of adults with type 2 diabetes. And we know that this class of medications and GLP-1 analogs more broadly lead to a 15 to 20% weight loss and they don't cause hypoglycemia, and they lead to impressive reductions in hemoglobin A1c. Meanwhile, insulin causes weight gain. It causes weight gain, and it causes hypoglycemia. So why don't we compare the two head-to-head? And in the diabetes world, it's pretty rare to find these head-to-head comparisons. That's really cool. And like we talked about last time, no one likes poking themselves with insulin multiple times a day. So, hey, maybe we can get rid of a few extra doses. Uh, What was the design here? Open label, phase three, industry-funded, non-inferiority randomized trial at 135 sites in 15 countries. So remember with the non-inferiority design, the goal is to answer the question, is this not worse than blank? So very commonly, you'll see a non-inferiority design. Maybe there's like a generic metformin. So is generic metformin non-inferior to the brand name metformin? And if it's non-inferior, then hey, let's use this cheaper version. So the population for this study were adults with type 2 diabetes who were taking basal insulin and had an A1C above 7.5%, but less than 11%. They also had to have a stable weight for the last 90 days 
I'll talk about the high level exclusion criteria that are most relevant. You were excluded if you had type one diabetes. You were excluded if you currently had pancreatitis or recently had pancreatitis. You were excluded if you had a recent MI stroke or heart failure in the past two months. And you were also excluded if you had a contraindication to GLP-1s, which is a family history of medullary thyroid cancer or one of the um, MEN syndromes. The intervention was once weekly terzepatide, okay? Once weekly terzepatide at one of three doses, 5, 10, or 15 milligrams. The comparator was three times a day insulin Lispro at a starting dose of four units and then uh, up titration as needed every two weeks. The outcome here was hemoglobin A1C over the one-year period. It was a non-inferiority analysis, and the stats were very complex, so I am not going to go into them. Okay, sounds good. And both groups also were on Lantus or some long-acting insulin as well. Is that right? Precisely. That's correct. Okay, great. Uh, What was table one? So they approached 2,200 patients. Uh, Approximately 1,400 were randomized. 60% were women. Average age was 60 years of age, uh, 90% were white, the average A1C was 9%, and the average BMI was 33. Cool. What did they find? So, uh, among adults who were randomized to terzepatide, their A1C reduced on average by 2%. In contrast, the A1C reduction from the TID insulin Lispro was 1%. So, that's a 1%. Uh, greater decrease in the terzepatide arm, which was found to be not only non-inferior, but also superior. And then really important, on average, you lost nine kilograms in weight. In contrast, for adults who got insulin, they gained three kilograms in weight, okay? So that's a 12 kilogram difference if you got terzepatide. Uh, In terms of side effects, you know, this is in keeping with this class of medications. We saw higher rates of nausea, 20 some odd percent, diarrhea, 10%, and vomiting, uh, 5% for those who got terzepatide. And then in terms of severe hypoglycemia, there was a tenfold higher risk with insulin. I repeat, a tenfold higher risk with insulin. Okay, that's 0.4 events if you got um, terzepatide in a year um, compared to 4.4 events uh, with insulin um, Lispro over a year. Oh my goodness. I mean, impressive results and like a nice reminder, like insulin can be dangerous. Like, oh, all right. What were some of the limitations here? Yeah. Just um, a small correction. Uh, Insulin is dangerous. Insulin (laughs) is dangerous. Be right. Sure. Insulin can be dangerous. So that's fair. Um, Main limitations. This is an unblinded trial by design, right? Terzepatide is once weekly, insulin lispros three times a day. So you can never um, get around that fact. Another limitation, trizepatide is wicked expensive. So in the US, it's approximately $1,000 for a one month supply. Uh, But so is insulin. Insulin's really expensive too. Um, So those are a couple of the probably main limitations. And of course, what we care even more about are cardiovascular outcomes. So it would be really cool to compare insulin to terzepatide uh, in a long-term larger study. The study would have to be like 5,000 some odd people. However, we already know that terzepatide improves cardiovascular events and insulin does not. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Not to like 
bemoan the point, but sometimes we sort of glaze over the side effects, like the nausea, the diarrhea, the vomiting. And of course, this is something that we see in things like semaglutide. Um, what do you think, like clinical experience, can patients kind of put up with this? Because otherwise, like it's quite impressive. Like the other clinical outcomes are amazing. But you know, I sometimes I'm like, man, I don't love feeling nauseated. So I can sympathize with a patient who would say, oh, but doc, like what about those GI side effects? Yeah. So the main tricks that I've used based on what I've learned from smart endocrinologists is um, number one, like set expectations appropriately. So I tell patients before I start semaglutide, 100% of patients will get nausea and diarrhea. So that's what their expectation is. And then, you know, a month or two later, if they get no nausea or vomiting, it's like they have like a new bond with this drug. Like, whoa, hey, this must be a good drug for me. The other aspect is for individuals that do experience nausea, um, very slow up titration in the dose, very slow up titration in the dose is incredibly helpful. And um, if you up titrate it slowly enough, I do find most patients will be able to tolerate it, and then it doesn't continue thereafter. The other thing is like, you don't have to go to maximum doses to get um, the, the benefits. Uh, so uh, that's, those are some of the tricks that I've kind of learned uh, so, so far. Yeah, I like that. Okay. Well, uh, what's your take on point? So in people with inadequately controlled type 2 diabetes who are already on basal insulin, weekly terzepatide compared to TID insulin was associated with better glycemic control greater weight loss, and a lower risk of hypoglycemia, albeit with an increased risk of GI side effects. Practice changing for you? 110%, um, especially if I was living in America. Uh, so right now in Canada, because it's Canada and we're uh, behind the times and most things in medicine, we don't yet have access to this medication. But certainly once it is available for that individual who you've started on long acting insulin and you're just sort of hoping you won't have to give them TID insulin, um, this is beautiful evidence to show that your next step could be trisepatide. And it'll be great to one day see, hey, maybe we can do away with insulin altogether and instead compare the adult who's on oral agents, uh, plus or minus semaglutide to get randomized to like long acting insulin versus uh, a nice GLP-1 or GLP-1 related drug. I wonder if that's in the pipeline. Like this is pretty impressive. At a minimum, you're getting rid of three extra doses of insulin for those people that are on basal bolus. Like pretty cool. Uh, Canada, please, let's think about getting access. But man, that is expensive. A thousand bucks a month. Who can afford that? Oh, absolutely, John. But but insulin in the US is a very similar price point. So so you can't even use the argument that, oh, it's too expensive and they should just be using insulin. No, 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 no. Insulin's almost the exact same freaking price. So individuals in the US would have to rely on um, drug coverage through their employer uh, or like Obamacare or whatever they're calling it nowadays. Uh, and then for individuals on Medicare, Medicaid, um, I'd have to fact check myself on this, but I'm pretty sure it's covered. But yeah, you're right. Price is important. Yeah. Okay. Well, really cool paper. Exciting results. Agreed. Okay. Now we'll change gears and uh, talk on the good stuff. What good stuff caught your eye? Uh, so this is from the CBC. It's a lovely story of a woman from New Brunswick who had a bone marrow transplant uh, done 10 years prior. And she met the donor who's this uh, lovely guy from Mississippi that had a nice visit together. Uh, it's a reminder, register. Just donate blood or even sign up to be a, a bone marrow donor. I have now aged out. So I'd been signed up, but after age 35, you can no longer be eligible. So I've aged out of the system, unfortunately. 
Huh. I won't disclose my age, but I'm definitely older than 35. So I've also been aged out. Okay, maybe instead I'll donate some blood or something like that. And then good stuff that caught my eye. You and I have talked a lot about uh, the Intern at Work podcast, but it's pretty incredible when you uh, look to see all the material and educational content they've created, especially those really nice infographics. Um, sometimes when I'm on the ward, I have to remind myself of many, many things. And, and I, I just find using internet work is um, super helpful to find these uh, really aesthetically appealing uh, infographics. So we'll include a link to their podcast um, in the show notes. Yeah, they are a great little tool. Shout out to Kevin Venus. Uh, I think he most recently had helped contribute to one on uh, manifestations of tuberculosis. And it was great. I was like, oh, yeah, I love these infographics. It's a nice way to, to learn and to remember detail. Oh, nice. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin's a, a, a great guy. He, he, you know, he's not a clinician scientist and um, he worked his butt off for the COVID prone uh, clinical trial. So I feel like I really owe him one. Anyway. Okay, John, um, great to record. We'll chat again soon. Talk to you later, Mike. The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Rounds Table, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all the support.